years ago, I was conversing with an older man, a bachelor, and we were talking about his reasons for not being married, and he said to me, I love my independence too much. I love to do what I want, when I want. I want to come and go as I please. I want to eat what I please without having to answer to anyone. Those of us who are married know that when you give up the privilege of being a bachelor and take the privilege of being married, there are some freedoms that you have to give up. It's very interesting, you know, you go to a restaurant with an older couple and they're sitting down and you have eaten the main course and then comes dessert. And the husband has been waiting for this very precious time. And the waiter comes with the menu and gives him the dessert menu. And he studies it. And he purposefully avoids looking at his wife. And the fellow passes by and he chooses the pecan pie. And he has a little bit of cream with it. Ice cream if he prefers. And finally, he makes contact with his wife and she gives him a very sweet and lovely smile. But he knows that if he takes one bite of that pecan pie, he's going to have to give an explanation when he gets home. He has to give up his freedom. He may not eat everything that he wishes. He may not go where he pleases without consulting with his wife. There is Yes, a loss of some freedoms when you are married. Because the reality is that relationships bring privileges, but they also bring responsibilities. And those of us who are Christians, we are in a sacred relationship. We are in a relationship with God himself. And in that relationship, we are the junior partner. The Lord is the senior partner in that relationship. We answer to him. And though this relationship with God brings us great privileges, it demands responsibilities that we must listen to God. We may not in this relationship do as we please. Our task then is to please him because that relationship and our standing in that relationship as children of God demands that we please our father. And this subject of pleasing God is where I want to anchor our attention this evening. I want us to consider Paul's epistle to the Romans and chapter 14 of Romans. The Apostle Paul in the second part of Romans, in the second major division running from uh, chapter 12 to the end of the work deals with practical matters and in chapter 14 he turns to a particular problem that threatened to blow wide open existing tensions within the Roman church the Roman church was primarily comprised of Gentile Christians the church was originally Jewish in composition, but after the Jews were driven out of Rome, the character of the Roman church changed. And so by the time the Jews, some 70 years later, returned to 
Jerusalem, a return to Rome, they were no longer the majority. And because of the two different backgrounds, there were tensions within the Roman church. There were two primary, group that, primary uh, groups that Paul addressed in Romans 14, those who were considered the weak and the strong. Those to whom Paul refer as the weak were essentially Jewish Christians. These, it appears, did not possess the freedom to lay aside Old Testament stipulations like dietary rules and observances of special days. Consequently, they refused to eat meat offered up in idol temples. Some of them possibly thought that abstinence from drinking of wine was required of God, always taking the, taking the vow as one dedicated to God. They insisted on keeping the Sabbath and other feast days, as it would appear in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 14 of Romans. This then is the group of the, the weak. They still felt a tremendous obligation to the Old Testament, to the cultic aspect of the Old Testament. The second group within the church was the strong. These were the majority of Gentile converts. They might be said to belong to the Freedom Party. They enjoyed meat. They had no qualms about where the meat was offered. They drank wine and did not attach any significance to the Jewish special days. And instead of exhibiting tolerance towards one another, it appears that the strong despised the weak because of their refusal to freely eat and drink and because of their insistence upon keeping a special days, sacred days. On the other hand, the weak were judging the strong. It is not clear what they were saying, but it might have been that they were claiming that the strong, those who enjoyed meat and so on, were perhaps not living in obedience to Jesus Christ. At the same time, some of these weak people who were judging the strong were being pressured by the example and by the argument of the strong to partake in eating meat and therefore to compromise their conviction and act against their faith. Paul therefore desires that believers would not condemn and judge each other. And so he points out in verses 4 to 13 that both the weak and the strong belong to Christ their master. He starts by saying receive one another or receive one who is weak in the faith but not disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eat despises him who does not eat and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats for God has received him. In verses 4 to 13 now, he tells them that they are not to be in judgment of one another. He says, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. It is God who protects them. It is God who keeps them. 
And he does so not on the basis of what they eat or what they refrain from in terms of food, but it is God who by his almighty power who causes them to stand firm that is in the faith. He tells them one man esteems or one person esteems one day and above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. For he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and, give, and gives God thanks. Paul is arguing here that they are not to judge each other because they belong to God. They belong to the Lord. It is he then who is the master of his people. And that judgment belongs to him. Paul underlines this principle that both the weak and the strong belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and belong to God. He says, he enunciates this principle in verses 7 and 8. He says, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. It is therefore not the business of other Christians to judge. And, and by the way, the, the, the verb judge, as Paul uses it here, crino, does not mean that believers are, are to abstain from making distinctions. But it is rather to pass that condemning verdict upon others, to judge their motives and to assess them as to whether they truly belong to God. Paul is saying that that is the business of the master of both the weak and the strong. He says, all that we do in life, we do it unto the Lord. Whether we eat, we eat unto the Lord. If we refuse to eat, we refuse to do so unto God. If we live, we do not live for ourselves. And if we die, we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. All that we do in life is done unto the Lord, who is the master of his people. In verses 13 to 15b, Paul underscores that the, 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 the spiritual well-being of others is foremost when it relates to whether we exercise the right to eat and drink. Now, Apostle Paul would have them recognize that to eat and to drink by itself is not intrinsically wrong. In verse 14 he says, I know that and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. What the Apostle Paul now is arguing, that meat by itself, eating meat by itself is not wrong. But he says that there is a higher principle than merely serving our own interests and exercising our right to eat and to drink. He says in a sense that we ought not to elevate our preference and choice above the spiritual well-being of those who are weaker in the faith. But rather... Believers are to serve the stronger, are to serve the interest of the weaker Christian. And by so doing, that is, by serving the interest of the weaker Christian, by so doing, they display the love of Jesus Christ. 
In verse 15, yet if your brother is grieved because of your meat, you're no longer walking in love. So that the reason that we are to forego our right for the benefit and the edification of others, it is because this is the way of love. He says, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Do not let your good be spoken as evil. Do not exercise your right to the point where it becomes evil to others. In verse 17, Paul gives another explanation why believers are to, are to elevate then the spiritual well-being of others above their own right to eat and drink. He says, he says in verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. We ought not to insist then that we must have what we wish to have in terms of food and drink. He says, because God's kingdom is not essentially about eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is the essential nature of the kingdom of God. Paul therefore declares that the person who serves God in this way is acceptable to God and approved that is tested and found genuine by men in verse 18. For he who serves Christ in these things, that is in what things? In putting the interest of others above our own interest, not eating and drinking and causing ourselves to be a stumbling block to others. He who serves God in this way, Paul the Apostle tells us that that person is acceptable to God and proven to be genuine by men. He says, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the one who eats with offense. It is good to eat meat. It is, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. He says, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. What Paul is saying is that believers, therefore, ought to be careful how they exercise their freedoms in matters of food and drink. He says that they must pursue the way of peace and edify one another. They must not destroy the weaker brother by food. I want to make a, a, a clarification here. When Paul tells the Romans not to put a stumbling block in the path of others, not to destroy others by the exercise of their freedom, Paul is not suggesting that Christians are to simply give up everything that they would prefer because somebody in the church complains. There was, there was, there was a, a cartoon when I was in a service in another church. There's a pastor standing at the door on a Sunday morning shaking hands and other people are coming along. He, this lady... This older lady comes up and she has a little hat perched on, on, on her head with a little bird on top of it. And the pastor stops and he, he points and he says, what are you doing with that? And now he has on this very glaring suit, a, a yellow suit, checkered suit, with a big bellfoot pants. But he's pointing at the little hat saying, oh, what's that? Where did you get that from? He's offended by her, her birdie hat. But it doesn't mean that she must give up her hat if she enjoys it. Just because the pastor is offended or because some other Christian is offended by her little bird. No. At the end of the day, that's not what it means to put something in the path of a brother to make him stumble. 
What was happening here was these people, the strong, were enjoying meat and drink, and by so doing, they were causing the brother to stumble, not because they were offending him emotionally, but they were enticing him to compromise their integrity by eating and drinking against their conscience and so to act without faith, which becomes sin. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, do not exercise your right so that others will stumble, that is, they will follow, but they will not follow from a pure heart nor from faith. And so they will do what you're doing because of your freedom and because of your argument, but they compromise their integrity, they act against faith, and to act against faith is sin. It is in this discussion, then, of Paul talking to the weak and the strong, and particularly to the strong, not to put a stumbling block in the way of the weak, that he says, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, this word that you find in verse 18, translated, is acceptable to God, is the term pleasing, to please. He says, in literal terms, and if he who serves Christ in this way, in not putting a stumbling block before others, but in exercising restraint in what they enjoy for the benefit of others, he who serves Christ in these things is, is, is acceptable or is pleasing to God and approve of men. And this, this term, to please God, springs, it seems, out of nowhere in the chapter. Now I want us to talk a little bit about this notion of pleasing God. Now, first of all, I want to suggest that the great goal of the Christian is to please God. Paul uses the term, Eurystus, and it comes from Oresco, which means well-pleasing, to act in a way that gives pleasure and receives the approbation of another. Paul outlines that his mission in life was to please God. He uses this term, Euaristo, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, I believe we read earlier. He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Paul's great goal in life is to please God. The reason that he proclaims the gospel, the reason he lives the way he does, it is because we have made it our aim, our great goal in life, to be pleasing, to be pleasing to God. The Apostle Paul encourages the Ephesian believers in the second part of that epistle, in chapter 4 and afterwards, there is another division in, in Ephesians which is practical by nature. And there in chapter 5, 9, and 10, he encourages the Ephesians to make it their goal to please God. And so he says, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And he says that believers ought to be finding out what is acceptable. But the term acceptable is pleasing. You ought to find out, he says, what is pleasing to the Lord in Ephesians 5 verse 9. It is the goal of Paul. It is the goal, ought to be the goal of the Ephesians. And Paul, when he writes to Timothy, suggests to him that this must be his goal. And he draws upon the illustration of a soldier. We were looking at that when we were going through 
Paul's second epistle to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That is, a soldier on active duty does not entangle himself in civilian affairs, but his entire aim is to please his commanding officer. And those who are enlisted in Christ and have him as their superior and as their Lord and as their King, their duty is to please him. I am suggesting that this language that Paul uses here in Romans 14 and verse 18, that is, they're serving one another, is pleasing to God, that this is the goal of the Christian. In fact, this was the goal of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, 28, 29, Jesus could say, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. I always do the things that please him. Was this, a, was this a, an unsubstantiated boast by the Lord Jesus? By no means. Because the Father could declare of him, this, as it, at his baptism, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Paul says, the believer who serves the Lord Jesus Christ in this way is acceptable to God, is pleasing to God. And not only that, but he is approved by men. My first argument is that this calling, this task of pleasing God, is the goal of the believer. But as we look at this matter of pleasing God, it ought to be borne in mind that the task of pleasing God is a comprehensive act that involves serving Christ. So one of the questions that we may ask is, what, what is involved in pleasing God? How does one bring pleasure to God? It, 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 it's an amazing thought that, that as human beings, we can bring pleasure to the heart of God. We believe that it is impossible for us to inflict pain upon God at our will. But the Bible teaches that God can be pleased. We can give pleasure to God. How do we please him? How do we please him? What might we do to please God? We need to know that if we are to please God by serving him, the first thing that we are called to do is to present ourselves. Euristos, pleasing, appears in Romans chapter 12 at the beginning of this practical section of the epistle where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Where do you think pleasing is in that sentence? Well, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, and here it is, acceptable. But the word there is pleasing. 
Eurystus, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and Eurystus, pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. That is, that is the first thing that we do in pleasing God is that we present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. Because as we give ourselves to God, body and soul, we are offering up to God ourselves and this is pleasing to him and this is our spiritual act of worship. That is before we can serve the Lord Jesus Christ and or, or God the Father and please him in any way, we must first of all devote our whole selves to him. And the first act that we might do where God is pleased is that we must commit to him. We give ourselves fully to him. I beseech you therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It's the basis of all pleasing act to God. So we please God by presenting ourselves to him as our spiritual act of worship. We please God, not only by presenting ourselves to him, but we please him in a life of holiness. And so Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, could tell us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, again, chapter 4 marks a major division in this epistle of 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul says in chapter 4 verse 1, Finally then, this finally will go on for many verses. And Paul says, finally then, he's summing up his thoughts. Brethren, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Paul sees the believer's goal in pleasing God and he's going to tell him how he ought to please him. But before he tells them how they might please God, the apostle Paul begins and he gives them practical uh, uh, exhortation. He tells them, first and foremost, that pleasing God is not a matter of good advice. This is a matter of necessity to please God. Finally then, brethren, we urge you and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought, how you must walk and to please God. It is a necessity. It is binding. It is also binding precisely because the command to please God comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. It is on the authority of Jesus Christ that he's calling them to please God. It is based upon the authority of Christ who died for them and, and rose again and who, who ascended into heaven and who rules over his people. And therefore, to reject the command is to reject God. Well, how are they to please God? He says, we urge you we exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound more and more. Just as you receive from us how you, to, how you ought to walk and please God. In other words, they must please God, but, but they must abound in it. They mustn't just 
do a few things that please God. They must be growing in, in pleasing God. They must be abounding in pleasing God. But what does it include in pleasing God? Paul says, verse 3, 4, explanatory 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And he goes on to verse 8 in pursuing and developing this argument. And so the believer pleases God by presenting himself as a living sacrifice unto God. This is his first act to God of pleasing his Father. But he also must live a life that is morally acceptable, a life of holiness before God, living in sexual purity. But that purity transcends not just to sexuality, but in every aspect of life. Well, the believer pleases God in other ways. He may please God in sacrificial service rendered to God. Paul uses this same term, euaristus, elsewhere. He says to the Philippians, Indeed, I have all and I abound, I am fully and I have fully received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma and acceptable sacrifice, a, a pleasing sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And what is he saying? He's saying that, that the monetary gifts that he received from the Philippians through Epaphroditus is indeed a sacrifice, a pleasing sacrifice to God. In writing to the Colossian believers, Paul will tell us that we can please God by not only a moral life, but also by sacrificial service. And he tells them in Colossians chapter 1, he says, that he's praying for them, that they may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light in Colossians 1, 9 and 12, 1, 9 to 12. And so he's explaining precisely that to walk and to please God, what does it mean to please God? He uses these four participle clauses, which modify the main verb, to walk. They must walk and please God by bearing fruit in every good work. And so you see that pleasing God not only involves offering up ourselves to God as a sacrifice, saying that God, we devote and dedicate our lives to you. We not only abstain from sin, in particular sexual immorality, but we serve God. We give to him gifts, which he sees as a pleasing sacrifice. We walk pleasing to God by bearing fruit. There is the life of service, bearing fruit in every good work. He goes on to say we also please him in growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened for endurance and patience and giving thanks to the Father. All these are additional ways to please God. But in the context of Romans 14, we ought to see that pleasing God does not merely involve living wholly unto God and serving him sacrificially, but in pleasing God, we act in a manner that is sensitive to the best interests of others. For this is what the Apostle Paul emphasizes. For he who serves Christ... He who recognizes that he is the doulos of Christ, the servant of Christ, the slave of Christ, is owned by Christ. 
For if one is a servant of Christ, it means that one is owned by Jesus Christ. It means that that individual is under the rule of Christ. For a servant, as I have indicated before, is not only ruled by Christ, is not only owned by Christ, but is also ruled by Christ. These then who are servants of Christ, and by the way, he who serves Christ, this is an honor. The, the men in the Old Testament who were called servants of Yahweh, servants of God, didn't, didn't think of themselves as inferior. Didn't think that they were given some terrible job. They thought it was the best job in the world. The servants of the king. And we who are called to serve Christ, we serve him in this way. By putting the interest of others. And by serving Christ, by putting the interest of others above our own interests, interest, we are pleasing to God and approved of men. And so we please God by being sensitive and solicitous to the needs of others. That is how we treat one another. How considerate we are to the interest of others. How we conduct ourselves for the development and the spiritual well-being of others. This is something that pleases God. And so if you follow the Apostle Paul, one may please God by presenting himself to God. And it is only as we present ourselves to God that we will be concerned about giving up our rights for the spiritual health of others. We will never be able to put the interest of others above our own interest until we have first of all surrendered ourselves fully to Jesus Christ and to God himself. We have presented ourselves to God and then because we do not belong to ourselves, we can give ourselves freely to others. Let me say this, if pleasing God is to be our goal, and there are a variety of ways in which we please him involving presentation of ourselves, living morally to God, that we please him in our service and we please him in our sensitivity towards others and their interests, we must note that pleasing God is not automatic, but it requires a life transformed by grace. You see, Paul does have a theology of pleasing God. You, you come to a verse like this, he who serves Christ in these things is pleasing to God. And you see the language of pleasing and very often we can read over these without pausing. But Paul does have a theology of pleasing God. Some of which I have outlined for you. The Apostle Paul uses a derivative of the of the, of, the, of the word we have been using here for pleasing God. He, he, he does so in Romans 8 verse 8. And Paul tells us that pleasing God first of all requires a transformed life. He says, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who live a self-centered existence, who are guided purely by human consideration, it is impossible. He says they cannot, they do not have the ability to please God. That it takes a heart that has been regenerated. It takes one who has been changed by the Spirit and one in whom the Spirit dwells to be able to please God. It is not a matter, in other words, unbelievers will never be able to please God. One must first of all be converted. 
One must receive new life from above. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Then who can? Well, the converse, you see, will tell us who will please God. It is those who are in the Spirit. It is those who are indwelt by the Spirit, who has, who has entered into the age of the Spirit. Who are indwelt by the Spirit, who are guided by the Spirit, and those who walk in the Spirit. And so we need to understand this, that this matter of pleasing God, he who serves Christ in these things is pleasing to God, it requires a transformed life. It requires a renewed mind. These are overlapping fields. Paul tells the Romans in chapter 12, verse 2, And do not, be, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good, and, and what? And acceptable, but it is the same word, and pleasing, that you may prove that which is good and pleasing, and perfect will of God. It requires a renewed mind, a transformed life, a life transformed by the Spirit, but it requires a mind changed. We might be able to approve the things that are good and pleasing to God. Those who please God must have their minds changed, their minds renewed, so that they might be able to approve, to accept that which is good and pleasing and the perfect will of God. But to please, to please God requires a determination not to please ourselves. If you were to flip down to chapter 15 of Romans, within the first three verses, Paul uses the word please three times. He says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the reproach of those who reproach you fell on me. The Apostle Paul then makes it plain three times with this use of the word please, that those who are going to please God must first of all say no to pleasing self. That is, they cannot act in a manner only for their interests and for their pleasure. And Paul was one who's not just saying, do as I say, but not as I do, because he himself lived to please others. Not in a sense that he sought their approval, because he makes a point clear in Galatians chapter 1, that he does not please men, but he pleased God. So what does he mean when he pleased others? He says, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 32 to 33, he says, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greek or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. That is, when Paul says he pleases others, he means he lives for the good, for the eternal good of others, and so he pleases them. It is because he seeks their spiritual benefit. And Paul makes it clear that they ought not to please themselves and he lifts up before them this model of Christ and he says, you ought not to please yourselves. You see, if we are to please God, we are not to please ourselves. 
Paul says, this is precisely what Christ did not do. He did not please himself. And he quotes from Psalm 69 and verse 9. Christ bore the insult and the shame and the punishment of the cross. He did so because he was not pleasing himself, but he was pleasing God. He was acting for God and was acting for his people. And those of us who intend to please God must not please ourselves. We must, first of all, seek to please God. We must act like Christ who did not please himself. Well, my dear friends, make it your goal to please God. This is our calling. Our calling is to be more and more pleasing to God. Paul tells the, the Thessalonians, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. We are not to stagnate in this matter of pleasing God. We must set this as the bullseye that we are aiming for. That before we leave this world, we should make it our task every day to grow more and more pleasing to God. To examine our motives and our attitudes and our actions and ask ourselves, am I pleasing to God in all these areas? You and I are to be growing up, but we're to grow up more and more, abounding in pleasing God. It's quite interesting how Paul tells believers that to abound in love and to abound in faith, to abound in Christian virtues. But as we abound in all of these virtues, we are to abound more and more in pleasing God. Let's set that as our aim. Let, let's make that as the impelling force in our lives to please Him, to please our Father. Let us realize that the ability, though, to please God does not lie within us. That is in our native power. We cannot, by our own strength, please God. We need God's help to please him. And so it is for that reason that the writer to the Hebrews, as he concludes this epistle in chapter 13, 20, 21, makes and offers to God a tremendous prayer. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Even as we seek and set our sights on pleasing God, we must pray, God, work within us what is well-pleasing in your sight. We must be frank and bold in confessing to God that we have not the capacity of ourselves to please him. So he must do the work in our hearts. He must turn us away from pleasing ourselves, from satisfying our own lust and pleasures to pleasing him. He must work in us what is well pleasing to him. Lord, you must do the work. Command what you will and Lord, produce it within us. If we are to please God, let us know that we have to live by faith in him. For the writer of Hebrews says, 
He tells us this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What I'm saying is that if you're going to live this week to please God, you must come by faith. Without faith, it is impossible. You ought to leave this room with the conviction and the assurance that you will please him. You are not merely to pray for grace to please him. You are to trust that you will please him. But you are to trust in the Lord. You are to rely upon the power of God that is greater than our hearts, greater than our appetites. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. How do you think, how do you think the Old Testament saints of God pleased him? Well, they did so by faith. It's very interesting, you know, even in here in Hebrews 11, it says, uh, Enoch, Enoch, that righteous man. In chapter 5 of Genesis, it says that Enoch walked with God. But when the writer of Hebrews comments on Enoch, he says, Enoch pleased God. Enoch pleased God. How did he do it? How did he walk with God and how did he please God? How did he do so for 300 years? This man for 300 years pleased God. I suggest to you he did it by faith. By faith. He recognized his bankruptcy, his own weakness, his poverty. He knew he lacked the moral strength. He lacked the ability internally to please God. But he said, Lord, I will trust you. If you're going to live pleasing to God, you must lay hold upon God by faith and take from him the grace that he gives. May God help us that we may serve Christ by serving his people and please him for Jesus' sake.